much of our time, our energy, and our resources are focused on things that are merely temporal? Does the reality of eternity even enter our minds on a daily basis? Most importantly, how should our approach to life and eternity be changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, these are the kinds of questions David Platt puts before us in this sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This passage points us to the hope of our future bodily resurrection, a hope that is grounded in Christ's own bodily resurrection. And if Christ has in fact been raised, then it only makes sense that we would spend our lives in loving, radical, risk-taking, death-defying, all-out obedience to Him. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with part one of a message titled, How Do You Press On in Difficult Days? Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and as you're turning, I want to welcome not just those of you in this room, but those of you in Montgomery County and Loudoun and Prince William, as well as those of you online. We invite you to join us in person to the extent with which you are able it's good to be together around God's Word. We are now in the final stretch of our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians that goes all the way back to February 2020. So right before COVID, we started walking through this book, and we've been through a lot in this book with a long pause along the way. But to see the way God has spoken to our lives and our church family in such a timely, personal, powerful, unmistakable way has been nothing short of supernatural. And I am confident that these last two chapters of the next four weeks are gonna complete that trend starting today. Especially when I think about the situation we're in in our country right now with rising COVID cases, a renewed mask mandate in MoCo, just a clear sense that this is not over, not that it ever really has been for people all around the world and, and many people here in our country. I was meeting this week with a fellow pastor of a large predominantly African-American church in our city and they have still not resumed in-person gatherings as a church since last March. He shared with me about all the funerals they've had in their church and their community to the point where they had to start limiting funerals in their church building only to church members because there were so many people dying in their community. Like none of us thought last March, that this is where we would be almost a year and a half later. And not just with COVID, in other areas of our lives to do too. Today is my son's fifth birthday, but I can't celebrate it with him because he's in another country and I can't get to him. I was supposed to become his dad when he was three and a half and he's turning five today without me and without his mom, without brothers and a sister who pray for him every day and can't wait to love him. We'll celebrate his birthday together tonight, even though he's not there yet. Others of you are waiting in different ways 
and still others facing new challenges that have developed over the last year and a half in your life, your family, school, work, in health. So the question I want to ask today is, how do you keep going on when you don't know how long the trial will last? When some days, if you're totally honest, you want to throw in the towel. Or if you're not there, you at least wonder, what's the way forward? You're tired, you're weak, you're discouraged, and at the least you just want to stay still. How do you find the strength to step forward in the face of new challenges when you're already so depleted? In summary, how do you press on in difficult days? I was even thinking, praying specifically about students and teenagers who this time last week were at camp making significant decisions to trust in Jesus or to turn from sin in this way or that way, and you've been back less than a week and you're already facing temptations to leave that decision you made behind. How do you press forward in the face of temptations, of trials? So many different ways this question might apply in each of our lives. But as I ask it, I am yet again so thankful for how God in his sovereignty has ordained for us today to hear a specific word from him to help each one of us, no matter what's going on in our lives, with all the different things going on in our lives. So that's what I want to show you. We're actually going to walk through 1 Corinthians 15 over the next two weeks. But let me show you how this chapter starts and ends in order to show you what God is clearly saying to us right now in his word. So look at these first two verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes these words to the church at Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So get the picture. Paul's starting to bring this letter to a close, and he says, remember the gospel that you received, in which you were standing by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. Do you see that phrase? God's saying to his people, hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast to my word, to my promises to you, to my love for you in the gospel, to the rock I've given you to stand on and to save you, deliver you during these days. Hold fast. So that's the message from the very beginning of the book of this chapter. Now jump to the end of the chapter. See the book ends here. Listen to what God says at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 through Paul, verse 58. Therefore, in light of everything I've just written, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
Hold fast. Don't let these trials move you off the rock I've given you to stand on. No, let them enable you to press on, to abound in my work during these days. What a word, abound. God says to his people, don't give up. Don't give up, press on, abound. How is that possible in hard days? Here's how, by knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's worth it to press on. It's worth it forever. When we decided a a while back to title this series in 1 Corinthians, we had no idea what we would be walking through, but we said, let's title it Living in Light of Eternity. Because according to 1 Corinthians 15, and as we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 16, the key, the key to holding fast and pressing on in this world is remembering that this world is not the end. This world and all you are seeing around you is not all there is to see. In these two chapters, God is saying to us, lift your eyes amidst your trials, amidst the challenges, amidst the waiting, amidst the questions, amidst the hurt and the heartache, lift your eyes and see this world is not all there is and what you are living for will last forever. When you hold fast, you will get to the end and you will realize it was not in vain. It was not in vain. It was worth it. Holding fast, pressing on, abounding in the work of the Lord. It will be totally worth it. So I want to show you how this chapter communicates that truth to our hearts. And we're going to split this up into two parts. You do not want to miss next Sunday. Because what we're going to see this Sunday is awesome. And what we'll see next Sunday is awesomer. (laughs) It's even more awesome. But we'll start with just plain awesome in the first half of 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll take this first half in a couple of sections. So let's start by reading verses 1 through 11. Follow along with me in God's word. We've read the first two verses already, but we'll read them again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. All right, let's pause there for a minute, because I want to show you three truths today that we need to remember if we're going to hold fast, 
if we're gonna press on in the work of the Lord during difficult days. And remember is the right word. Remember that's how the whole chapter starts. I wanna remind you of truth to help you hold fast. So remembering is key to holding fast. So here's the first truth. According to God's word, how do you hold fast, press on in difficult days? You remember that God's grace will always, always, always prove sufficient for you. And obviously it's not necessary to say always three times there, but we need to emphasize this word and feel it. Remember that God's grace will always, 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 in all times, all circumstances, will always prove sufficient for you. So let me start from the end of what we just read and work our way back up. In the last few verses we just read, Paul's talking about his life. And in verse 10, he talks about how the grace of God is the reason he is who he is. God's grace has made me what I am. And how God's grace toward him was not in vain. It had an effect. And then do you hear his next words? He says, I work hard, he says, but this work is not me. It's the grace of God that is with me, in me. I love this language. Paul says, what I do, it's not me. It's God's grace with me, in me. And we're going to see in a minute that Paul is walking through trials as he writes this. And he's talking here about the grace of God, the help of God to keep going in the middle of trials. And this is not the only place that Paul talks like this. Even our Bible reading this morning, if you read it in Acts chapter 26, Paul's on trial for his life. And he says, I have the help of God. In Colossians chapter one, verse 29, Paul's talking about pressing on through suffering, through difficult days. And he writes, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You feel that language? He says, I toil, I labor, I struggle through trials with the energy, power, the grace of God working within me. Paul uses the same language later with the Corinthian church. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As he talks about challenges he's enduring, Paul recounts how God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. You see the language there? When you feel weakest, my grace will be sufficient to give you power. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are we hearing this from God? God is saying to each of us right now, to all who know and trust in him, his grace will be sufficient for us no matter what we face. And when we feel at our weakest, his grace will show itself to be sufficiently strong in our weakness. 
One more place I want to show you this. This is also the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I was spending time with some leaders in our church this week who feel weary. And we were in this chapter together. Listen to this language starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so, listen to this language, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Like that's a low point. I have no strength to go on. Despairing of even life. Just, I don't even have strength to go on, not just in ministry, in life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. It's like no hope, despair, weakness, depleted. But, so follow this, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says our strength was at the end in such a way that we had to rely on the power of the God who raises the dead. And that last phrase now brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15. So how can you know that God's grace will always, 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 no matter what circumstance, will always prove sufficient for you? How can you know that? How can you know that God's grace is sufficient for what you're walking through right now? Or that God's grace will be sufficient for you when whatever you face this next week or this next month or this next year. And Paul says, remember, you're relying on help from the God who raises the dead. And that's what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. Earlier in that passage we read, for I delivered to you as of first importance when I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now, if we're not careful, we can read that and it sounds pretty basic to us. Okay, Jesus died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. We can almost read these verses with a ho-hum sense of monotony. Yeah, 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 okay, I know that. But think about that. Because there's nothing ho-hum about that. We're talking about a man who died the most violent form of death imaginable in that day. And then after three days dead, not kind of dead, partly dead, but dead, for three days he was raised to life, and he started talking to people. Now, can you imagine going to a funeral this week, seeing someone's burial, like their dead body placed in the ground, and then a week later, that person coming up to you on the street saying hello? That's crazy. It's crazy good. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. May that never be ho-hum for us. And then, so now put all this together. Christian, do you realize the same grace and power that was sufficient to raise Jesus from the dead is the same grace and power that is in you as you walk through trials? Mark it down. If God's grace is sufficient to bring Jesus out of a tomb, then God's grace is sufficient to bring you through trials. 
Remember this, remember this. No matter how dark it gets, no matter how tough it is, no matter how discouraged you are, remember this. The grave conquering, Satan crushing, hell overcoming, death defeating, sin stopping, sorrow ending, trial trampling, tear wiping, joy bringing, never ending, grace and power of God are with you. And will always, always, always prove sufficient for you. That's the first truth to remember when you walk through difficult days. It leads to the second one. And I'll go ahead and give it to you, then I want to show it to you in 1 Corinthians 15. So, how do you hold fast and press on, move forward in difficult days? You remember the resurrection is real. Resurrection's real. It's a reality. So obviously, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a fundamental truth in Christianity, which 1 Corinthians 15 has already reminded us of. But there was a problem with the church at Corinth because many of the Christians there had grown up with a Greek worldview that believed in the immortality of the soul but not the body. So when we die, many of them thought, That was the end of the story for their bodies. Their soul would go on, never to fill a body again. And as a result, many of these Christians were denying that once they died, their bodies would ever be resurrected. Instead, only their souls would live on forever. We'll talk about that more next week, resurrected bodies. But in this chapter, first part of this chapter, Paul starts asking them, do you realize what you're saying? And do you realize the implications of what you're believing? Let's read what Paul says next, starting in verse 12. And here's what I want you to do. As we read through this, I want you to circle every time you see either the word dead or raised or resurrected, just to get a feel for how important it is that Jesus has been physically resurrected from the dead. So, and I'll try to do it up here. Circle every time we see dead dead or death, referred to in some way, as well as raised or resurrected, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that's a reference to death, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep died. For as by a man came death, by a man has has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, So also in Christ shall all be made alive, raised. But each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits and his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. I count around 35 times in 23 verses where this passage talks about the physical resurrection of the dead. And in essence, this passage is saying, if you don't believe in the physical resurrection of your body, then you are saying Jesus didn't physically rise from the dead in his body. And Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, you realize the implications of that. So just think about this question. What if Jesus did not rise from the dead? I'm going to put up here on the screen four unavoidable conclusions that Paul comes to, really tragic consequences, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. Just think about it. If Jesus is still in the grave, has not physically risen from the grave, then one, our faith is futile, and we stand guilty before God. Verse 14 says, your faith is in vain. Verse 17, your faith is futile, it's pointless, it's worthless. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, you have staked your entire life for eternity on the decomposed corpse of a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago. And even worse, verse 17 says, you're still in your sins. You say, well, I thought it was Jesus' death on the cross that provides forgiveness for sins. And indeed, the cross is where we see Jesus died in the place of sinners, but the resurrection is where we see that his sacrifice has been accepted by God on behalf of sinners. God has raised him to life to show that all who trust in him will live forever with him. That's Romans 4, 25. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So if Jesus' resurrection is not a reality, neither is our justification, and we stand guilty before God for our sins. And then keep going, following the implications here. If that's the case, then our message is false, and our mission is destructive. What we are preaching is in vain, Paul says in verse 14. It's not true. We're spreading lies which makes our mission as Christians in the church destructive. Verse 15 says, we're even found to be misrepresenting God. That's significant. In McLean Bible Church, we're spreading falsehoods about God if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. We're spreading lies all across Metro Washington, D.C., and all over the world in ways that defame and dishonor God himself. 
And as if that's not enough, it keeps going. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then those who have died in Christ have been condemned before God. Paul says in verse 18, those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And the word he uses there for perish is more than just physical death. Physical death is what Paul means when he says those who have fallen asleep in Christ. And it makes sense when you put it together. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians who have died were not forgiven of their sins. They were guilty before God. And as a result, they are now at this moment experiencing eternal condemnation, the everlasting punishment for their sin. And then Paul concludes, for his own life and for other followers of Jesus, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to Jesus is to be pitied in this world. Just pity me and the way I'm living if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In verse 30, he starts talking about all the risks he's taking, the trials he's enduring to the point where he's facing death for the spread of the gospel, which we've seen in our Bible reading over the last couple weeks in the book of Acts, Paul being beaten, imprisoned, stoned, starved, endangered, shipwrecked. And in verse 30 here, he says, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 31, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus. I die every day. In verse 32, he starts talking about fighting with beasts at Ephesus. And Paul's saying, why am I doing this? Why am I taking risks and enduring trials and flirting with death in obedience to Jesus? And Paul literally says, this is dumb if Jesus is still dead. He said, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if this life is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry. And it makes sense. If this world is all there is, friends, then give up the battle and live it up in this world. Take it easy. Coast it out. Maximize your comforts in this world. That kind of life makes sense if this world is all there is. And risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to a dead Jewish rabbi who deceived all his followers makes no sense in this world. I pity people who live like that. Do you remember Pascal's wager? So Blaise Pascal's theory, simplified, was that it's better to be a Christian than a non-Christian in this world solely because of the chances. Pascal said, if you live your life as a Christian on earth, you later come to find out that Christianity is not true, then you won't have lost a lot because after all, you lived a nice, good, decent life. But, Pascal said, if you live your life as a non-Christian in this world, and in eternity you discover that Christianity is indeed true, then you'll have lost everything and you'll spend all of eternity in hell. So when you play the chances, it's worth it. It's just a lot smarter to be a Christian. The Bible could not disagree more. You see, what Pascal said might be the case if all that was involved in Christianity was living a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. 
live it up in this world with all the possessions and pursuits and pleasures of this world, tack on Jesus on Sundays for safe measure. And if that's what Christianity is, then what Pascal said makes sense. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the version of Christianity, Christianity that for far too long has prevailed in our culture. And that is the version of Christianity that multitudes of professing Christians have settled for, living just like everyone else in the world for everything everybody else in the world is living for and tacking on Jesus for safe measure. But that is not biblical Christianity because biblical Christianity is about risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to Jesus. It's about giving your life to spread this gospel wherever God leads, no matter what it costs. It's about embracing suffering that comes along the way in that process. Even going to hard places, needy places, dangerous places among dangerous people. It's about forsaking possessions and putting aside comforts and taking risks. And all of that only makes sense if Jesus rose from the dead. I think about one family in our church family. I won't mention their name just for the sake of security, but we're commissioning them out here today at Tyson's. This couple and their kids whom I've grown to love over the last couple of years, they have deliberately thrown aside a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. They've brought foster children into their home in ways that have not always been easy, in ways that have been hard, that have led them to adopt in different ways. And now they're taking a job overseas deliberately in a place in West Africa in the middle of unreached people to try to get the gospel to them. They're about to pack their bags and go to a hard place with all their kids. And if Jesus is still in the grave, then none of that makes sense. Just take it easy, guys. Live it up here. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then maximize your comfort. Minimize the risks you're taking. But, verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that changes everything. So let's do that. this in this passage. Let's not just think about the implications if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because good news, he was raised from the dead. So let's turn these implications around that exist because Jesus was raised from the dead. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, follow this, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our faith is well-founded and we stand forgiven before God. Indeed, our faith is not futile. Our faith is well-founded, extremely well-founded. So to non-Christian Friends, gather with us today. Please hear this. Every single one of us in this room, wherever you are sitting, needs forgiveness before God. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. Our greatest need is to be restored to God. And the good news of the Bible is God has made a way for that restoration to be a reality. God has sent his son Jesus, to die on a cross for sins. God has raised him from the dead so that anyone, anywhere who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus as Savior and Lord will be forgiven of all their sins and restored to relationship with God forever. 
There is no better, wiser, more secure, more eternally secure place to found your faith than in the risen Christ. For all who trust in Christ stand forgiven before God. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. And in light of this, follow this with me, our message is true and our mission is urgent. We have seen and we know the one who conquered death. And he's conquered death and sin, not just on our behalf, but on behalf of sinners around us and sinners around the world. And they need the gospel. So we lay down our lives to make it known. We give our lives, even lose them if necessary, telling everyone that Jesus has conquered death. And we do it with boldness because we know that those who have died in Christ now dwell with God. We know that all who've gone before us and have trusted in Jesus, though they died, they are alive. Think about my dad, tomorrow's the anniversary of the day he suddenly and unexpectedly died of a heart attack. I so miss my dad, yet I know that even though my dad died, he lives. Because of his faith in the risen Christ, my dad is dwelling with God right now, along with every single person who has died with faith in the risen Christ. Which reminds us, we have nothing to fear in this life. To live is Christ, to die is what? It's gain. So we take risks and we endure trials and we press forward in death-defying obedience to Jesus, knowing this kind of life is not to be pitied in this world. No, risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to Jesus is to be envied in this world. This is the only life that makes sense if Jesus is alive. This family we're sending out to spend their lives for the spread of the gospel among the unreached in West Africa, that's an enviable life. And not just for them, for an entire church family that says today, whether we go or we stay, we will take risks and endure trials and press forward in death-defying obedience to Jesus. Why? Because we know this kind of life is not in vain. Life is not in vain when it's lived in obedience to the resurrected Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, in Christ, remember that God's grace will always, always, always prove sufficient for you, and the resurrection is real. And third, I can't wait. We're going to unpack number two even more next week. Awesome myrrh. Number three, remember where all of history is headed. So where I want to leave us today, as we look forward to next week, is with an outline of history that the Bible gives us, starting with what we read in verse 24 of this chapter. So remember where all of history is headed. Paul starts talking about the end when Jesus returns and he says Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I just want you to get a picture here, a biblical perspective on what is going on in the world right now and what's gonna happen in this world in the future. So I'll put it up here on the screen if you're taking notes. At this moment, Jesus has dominion over all things. At this moment, Jesus is risen from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he right now is reigning over everything. Think about his words at the beginning of the Great Commission that we say to each other every week. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right now, Jesus has all authority, dominion over all things. 
And that's significant because I think a lot of Christians have the idea, at least in the back of our minds, that when Jesus returns, that's when he's going to reign over all the world. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says Jesus Christ is reigning right now. In fact, the language in verse 25 is intentional. Paul says, he must reign until. Until. That word until implies that Jesus is reigning now in view of something else to come in the future. So at this moment, Jesus has dominion, reign over all things. He is in control. And that's good news to know. It's good news to know. It's good to remember that COVID is not in control. And neither is cancer. And neither is crime. And neither, neither is any leader or country in this world for that matter. Mark it down. Our nation is not supreme. And that is really good news. There is only one kingdom that reigns supreme. And it's the kingdom that's ruled by the king who has dominion over all things. His name is Jesus. And you know what he's doing right now? Verse 25. Day after day, Jesus is putting the enemies of God under his feet. That language reminds us of Paul's language at the end of Ephesians, where he talks about a battle that is raging in the world for the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And it's a battle, not of flesh and blood, but of rulers in this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the gospel of this kingdom is advancing through men and women, students, living in risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to Jesus, the resurrected King. And as we press on, trusting Christ, proclaiming Christ through trials and temptations, through slander, dangers, toils, and snares, as we press on, trusting Christ and proclaiming Christ through all of that, the enemies of God are being defeated. Every time a new person, man, woman, child, comes to faith in Christ, the enemies of God are being defeated. Every time a need is met in the name of Jesus, every time an orphan finds a family, a widow finds help, a sojourner finds a home in the name of Jesus, Every time the enslaved are freed and the oppressed are redeemed and the persecuted are delivered and the unreached are reached, in the name of Jesus, the enemies of God are being defeated. That's what Jesus is doing right now in history. And don't miss it. He's doing it through you and me. So press on, church. Abound in this work. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Don't despair and don't stop. Look up and see Jesus, the King on high who loves you and gave his life for you and who lives in you. He is reigning over all things. And one day soon, Jesus will deliver over all things. Verse 24 says, he will deliver over every rule, and authority and power, including verse 25, death itself. Jesus is going to overcome them all. One day, all the enemies of God will finally be defeated. This must happen, verse 25 says. It's another way of saying this will happen. And we know this because the God of history has ordained this. And he's ordained this for his own glory. Verse 28 
when all things are subjected to him, him being Christ the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him so that God may be all in all. That's where all of history is headed. This is Philippians chapter two. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's where all of history is headed toward the day when the enemies of God will finally be defeated, when Satan and sin and suffering and COVID and cancer and a hurt and a heartache and sorrow and death will all be no more. And God, the King, will be worshiped and praised by a people from every tribe and tongue and nation of this earth. So church, kids, students, young adults, singles, couples, families, senior adults, hold fast. Stand strong. Press forward in risk-taking, trial-enduring, death-defying obedience to Jesus, remembering that every step of the way, God's grace will always, always, always prove sufficient for you. The resurrection is real, and it's coming. All of history is headed toward the day when the enemies of God will finally be defeated and the glory of God will forever be exalted. Live today and live every day, especially in difficult days, with immovable, unshakable hope in this world, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's never in vain when it's in the Lord. So, here's what I want to do. I was thinking about how we could best respond to this text. And one thing immediately came to my mind, and I want to lead us to do this a little different than we normally do. I want to invite us to do this in this room as well as every other room where we're gathered. And for those of you who are watching online, to whatever extent it's appropriate for you to be involved in this, But in just a second, I want to invite all across this room, other rooms, knowing there are so many different circumstances represented here today. People who are walking through trials, through valleys, who feel depleted, who feel weak, and just need an extra measure of grace to press on. And in just a moment, I'm gonna invite you if you would put yourself in that category, just needing extra measure of grace to press on in difficult days, I'm gonna invite you in just a minute to stand where you are. And normally what I would invite us to do is gather around those people who are standing, place hands on their shoulders and just pray over them that way. In light of COVID, I'm not gonna invite us to do that. But once you've stood, it's just a picture of you saying, yeah, I need, I need an extra measure of grace to press on in difficult days. Once you've stood, just acknowledge that before God and even before a church family. And just nobody, you're not going to share with anybody, just by your standing to say that. And then I'm just going to invite all of us who are sitting at that point just to put out hands toward those people. It's a picture of as best as we can, COVID style, laying hands on and just pray for our brothers and sisters. So I want to invite you to stand. And 
I would say, like, don't, don't think, well, I don't know if what I'm going through is as hard as what others are going through. Like, it's not about relative to others. It's just about what you say today. I need an extra measure of grace to press on during these days. And if you would say that, then I want to invite you to stand right now in this room and in other places as just a picture of you saying, I need that kind of grace right now in my life. Would you stand here? all across different locations, wherever you are. There's hurt, trial, struggle. Saying, I need an extra measure of grace from God. Anybody else? Okay, people stand all across this room, I trust, and other places too. Can we just bow our heads right now and put our hands out toward these folks? And let's just start praying out loud all at the same time, just all our voices out loud, interceding. You don't necessarily know those people you're praying for. You don't know what they're walking through, but you know what God's word has just said to us. So pray these things. Pray for their, they were able to hold fast, be immovable. God's grace over them. So just start praying over them right now. And then after you've prayed for a couple minutes all together, I'll, I'll lead us corporately in prayer. So let's just start praying for them right now, out loud, all across this room, all across other locations, together across the city, interceding for one another. Oh God, we, we come before you collective voices and hearts right now on behalf, specifically on behalf of those who are standing right now. God, I, I don't presume every one of them who's standing even knows you personally, has even entered into relationship with you through faith in Jesus. God, I pray that for any who are standing who don't know Jesus personally, that this would be the day that they find healing for their deepest hurts. This would be the day where they find balm for their deepest wounds. They find your mercy and reconciliation to you and through trust in you, eternal life with you. God, we pray that over them. And at the same time, we pray for all those who know you, God, who are, who are hurting, who are struggling, who feel weak and depleted, maybe even to the point of despairing of life itself. God, we pray for your grace to shower over them in this moment. May they know in a deep and personal way, right now through your spirit speaking to their hearts as we pray for them, may they know how much you love them. May they know they are not alone. May they know that you are with them, that your grace is with them, that your strength, your power are theirs, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. May they know that power is living inside of them. So God, may they put aside dependence on themselves. They don't have it. They don't have the strength to go on. So we pray for your strength to be their strength. Be strength in their weakness. Be comfort in their hurts. Be wisdom amidst their questions. God, show, shower them with your grace, we pray. God, where healing is needed, we pray for healing. Where reconciliation and restoration is needed, we pray for that. 
God, we pray for the burdens that are heavy on their hearts. God, we pray that they would cast them on you right now and know you care for them and you take them. May your peace be theirs. May your comfort be theirs. May your hope be theirs. God, in the middle of despair, may they see in you they have reason for hope. We pray you would help them to hold fast on on days, maybe even like this, when faith is hard to come by, when they're tempted not to trust, when they're tempted to doubt your goodness or your greatness, God, we pray that you would give them faith, that your grace would be sufficient in that moment. You would help them to see you on high, Lord Jesus, working on their behalf, interceding for them even now. And may they know that if you are for them, nothing can stand against them. May they know that the power to raise Jesus from the dead is theirs. And may they know that your grace will always, always, always prove sufficient for everything they need. And God, we pray this together with longing for the day when you will wipe away every tear from our eyes and when sin will be no more and sorrow will be no more and struggle and suffering will be no more. Jesus, we praise you for dying on the cross to pay the price for sins, for rising from the dead, for ascending to the Father in heaven and for your promise that one day you are coming back and you will take the old and it will be gone and the new will come. So help us, help us, we pray, to persevere, hold fast in faith, press on in difficult days as we wait for that day. In Jesus' name we pray all these things and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. I am so very thankful for this message from David. I know a lot of times my viewpoint can feel very myopic. I feel like I get stuck in this 24-hour tunnel vision, you know, really only seeing what's immediately ahead of me and what's immediately behind me. And I forget that God has this long-range view of my life and it's eternal. This was such a great reminder to lift my eyes and lift my heart to God's glorious plan for our lives. Did you know that 40% of the world's population is unreached? That means there are 3.2 billion people with little to no access to the gospel. And most of those people live in the hardest to reach places on earth and experience unimaginable suffering. Even more staggering is the fact that only 1% of all resources given to missions goes to the unreached. Help us change that this summer through Urgent's More Than One campaign. Become an urgent member and join thousands of others around the world as we address the world's most urgent physical and spiritual needs. Visit urgentneeds.org to give. That's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and much more, visit Radical.net.